Welcome to Idaho Family Report. My name is Blaine Kanzadi, president of Idaho Family Policy Center. We're going to jump straight into our interview with Josh Bales, pastor of the Well Church in Boise. It's a great interview. Stick with us. Welcome back to the Idaho Family Report. We're joined today by Pastor Josh Bales with The Well Church in Boise. Thanks so much for joining us, Pastor Josh. I'm so excited to be here. If you don't mind, just explain to the audience uh, who you guys are at The Well Church and what you guys believe. Yeah, so we are a uh, just a local independent um, reformed church uh, planted in about 2007 and um, we love the doctrines of grace. We love how it is supposed to apply to all of life, not just uh, the private part of our life, but also the public part of our life. I think that kind of sums up what we're doing. Well, Josh, one of the most prevalent myths that is commonly encountered, I think, in evangelical circles today is this idea that we have a, a, a private life and a public life or uh, sacred and secular, and you kind of filter down how you act in different areas based on which of those categories um, that activity falls into. Oftentimes, you know, this is related to the worldview of pietism, and you've staked out a position against pietism that is, quite frankly, out of step with uh, much of the evangelical world. What is pietism, and why do you see it as a problem? So, so piety is is good because piety is is personal holiness. Uh, we're we are called to we, we we were elected so that we could be holy and blameless before Him. Paul says in Ephesians one. But pietism, whenever you add an ism on top of a, a word, it becomes a worldview through which you you view everything else. And so pietism is essentially individual holiness at the expense of kind of all these other spheres. One example would be, of course, Nazi Germany. Um, the Lutherans, many of them um, anyway, believed and were, were held captive by the, the worldview of pietism. What they believed was most important was their individual holiness, and they were blocked, essentially, because of this worldview from applying Christ's word and Christ's rule into the public sphere. Now, that's a little bit simplified, um, but you, you kind of get the idea. So pietism is essentially the idea that Christianity impacts your personal private life. Yes. Your, 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 your daily devotions, your Bible reading, your prayer time, your quiet time, going to church. Yeah. But Christianity doesn't really say much about the world at large, except for the fact that you're supposed to act according to a Christian ethic That's when you right. go out into the world. That's correct. Yep. And so with pietism, um, which has become a very popular belief, especially in the last hundred years in American evangelical circles, um, you begin to separate what the Bible says about, you begin to deny, I guess, what the Bible says about the rest of life outside of your personal life. That, that's right. And I, and I think that the problem is, is when you reduce piety to either your yourself as an individual or the four walls of your church, that is not at all. I mean, and I mean, just quick, two quick examples, right? So Daniel, when he is in Babylon, um, he calls out Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, because of Nebuchadnezzar's unrighteousness and his handling of, of people in society. Another example is John the Baptist, when he calls out King Herod for, for Herod sleeping with his brother's wife. Both of these men, and you could multiply these out. I mean, the prophets always spoke to the kings in the Old Testament. The, the Christian worldview, um, 
God is Lord over heaven and earth, not just over the four walls of our church. And I, we, we've basically reduced God to being a tribal deity. Yeah, the Bible speaks to all of life, not just personal renewal and personal regeneration, but even societal renewal and societal regeneration. Absolutely. Related to this is the idea, and, and I hear this all the time, that we need to preach Christ, not politics. That, that Christians need to focus on evangelism, just evangelism, and and cultural issues, um, societal issues are really outside of the realm of uh, the Christian vision for engagement. How do you respond to someone who who says that? Well, first of all, it's just it's very selective. Why, why wouldn't we say something like, "Hey, we should preach Christ, not the duties of a father," or "Christ, not the duties of children"? I mean, that that's. So it's it's very selective in what it's choosing. But secondly, uh, you know maybe the greatest you know maybe the greatest verse that that people would use to to kind of banter that slogan is from First Corinthians two, where Paul explicitly says, "For I decided to know nothing among you except for Jesus Christ and Him crucified." Now the problem with using that verse to say, "Hey, we should only preach Christ," is that Paul then spends the next fourteen chapters talking about a lot of other things, and the same thing with all of his other epistles. What Paul means by saying, "I decided to know nothing among." you except for Jesus Christ and him crucified, is that every other thing in the universe, including politics, is like a planet that revolves around the sun of Christ. And so every subject under the sun um, finds its relationship to Christ, finds its source in Christ, uh, is, is obligated to show obedience to Christ. And so Paul is not pitting uh, the simple gospel message against every other subject. He's just saying that Christ is the center of every other subject, and to which we say, amen, hallelujah. Yeah, the, again, the Bible speaks to all of life, and Jesus is Lord over all of life, right? And if Jesus is truly Lord over all of life, then that means his will should be what we desire in every area of life, whether it's family, whether it's business, whether it's education, economics, government, uh, arts and sciences, whatever. We as Christians should want and should desire uh, to see God's truth impact and transform all of these different spheres of life. Amen. So let's transition into God's plan for nations. Uh, We see in Scripture that God has ordained for there to be different nations at different times with different boundaries. The, the Act nas- 17. Yep, Act 17. The, the national uh, you know, geopolitical world that we live in is really part of God's design for organizing human society. How, how as Christians, should we understand the role of nations in, in God's plan and how nations should follow God's will? Well, I would argue that every nation is is under a covenant with God. Um, and there's two ways to hear that. You know, obviously there are nations, we, we talked about before the broadcast, that a nation can specifically enter into a written covenant with God where the people are agreeing with with each other about what they're going to to give themselves over to God for. But, but aside from that, what you see in Scripture is that regardless of any kind of uh, specific, you know, um, detailed covenant that a people would make, every people group under the sun just is under a covenant with God. I mean, think about just the speech that we use in everyday language. Um, Many Christians today are saying things like, God is judging America. 
my question is, is what do you mean by that? Unless you mean that America had some sort of prior obligation to obey God's law and to honor him as God. And that's precisely what you see in scripture. I mean, I think that there are a lot of passages in scripture that, that we can read over really quickly and not realize the impact of what's going on. So in the book of Jeremiah, when Jeremiah is bringing charges against the, the people of Judah for their uh, covenantal infidelity, he then also turns to all the other nations, Moab, Philistia, Babylon, uh, Tyre and Sidon, and he starts to, to say, and this is what God has against you, and here is your punishment coming. In other words, what I would say is that those Deuteronomic blessings and cursings that you find in, in Deuteronomy that are specifically given to Israel, in a sense, those apply to every nation under the sun. So Acts 17, 26 and 27 says, God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that they, they being the nations, should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Mm -hmm. Here, Acts teaches us that we as nations have a responsibility to be faithful to God, mm -hmm. not just as individuals, right. but as nations. Yes, and as people groups. As people groups, yep. Covenantally, corporately, right? Yep. In the same way that a church has a responsibility to be faithful to God, mm -hmm. or a family has a responsibility to be faithful to God. Can, this, I, can I pause right there yes, real quick? Please do. So I think um, one, if, if you're a, ref, a reform folk or whatever, or you're used to covenantal language, this might be like, well, that, that's weird. But maybe a quick distinction between the national covenant and kind of the covenant of grace. So three important differences. The covenant of grace, um, which is the gospel essentially, is an unconditional covenant. Um, whereas national covenants are conditional. Um, do this and I will bless you, disobey and I will curse you. Secondly, the covenant of grace, the gospel, um, is only for uh, ultimately God's elect, whereas the national covenant is for all of humanity and it deals with every single society and every single individual. And then thirdly, the covenant of grace, the gospel, it deals with our eternal life, whereas the, the, the national covenant deals with our present life only. And so you can be in a country where the, the, you're being, your, your country is being cursed, just like Jeremiah was, and God is still preserving you and loving you because you're part of his elect, and he's going to take care of you, but your country as a whole is, is under God's curse. And because early America was so thoroughly steeped in the Protestant Reformed tradition and in Western Christianity in general, uh, our founding fathers very much believed in this covenantal understanding of nations. Uh, you know, the, the most famous quote related to this would be George Washington speaking in his Thanksgiving address that it's the duty of all nations to acknowledge the providence of Almighty God, to obey his will, to be grateful for his benefits, and humbly to implore his protection and favor. He said duty. Duty. It's a duty for nations to do that. And God will hold the nation, which includes the government and includes the people, accountable for their faithfulness to him. Um, you see this in Samuel Adams where Samuel Adams, who's a, who's a good Massachusetts Puritan, uh, says that revelation assures us that righteousness exalts a nation. Uh, it's Proverbs 14, 34. Communities are dealt with in this world by the wise and just ruler of the universe. He rewards or punishes them according to their general character. Another one would be Benjamin Rush, um, another very important founding father. John Adams counted Benjamin Rush as one of the three most important founding fathers. And Ben Rush said, Remember that national crimes require national punishments. National crimes require national punishments. Mm. 
That's good. So our founding fathers understood this idea that the nation has to be faithful to God. It needs to obey God's will. It needs to, in its laws, reflect the ultimate justice of God's law. Yeah. You know, I, I did have an objection. Um, I, I was communicating this to, to a brother uh, recently, and um, his answer was, now, I'm going to put you on the spot now. I'm, I'm going to play interviewer. Uh, this person said, um, well, that was Old Testament. Um, so when God's calling out all these other nations, that's Old Testament. What would you what would you say to that? Yeah, so um, I think I think you see a lot in the Old Testament of God judging nations, but God is the same always. And there's, those, I think there's a verse that says that. Somewhere. Yes, <laughs> those <laughs> principles don't change. Um, and you 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 know certainly Israel, Old Testament Israel had a special covenantal relationship with God. Yeah, but. Many of those principles apply to the other nations as well. Well, you know, there's a verse, um, sorry if that was loud, but in Genesis 15, I think this is where God made the covenant with um, Abraham. And he, you know, he he has Abraham slaughter the animals. There's blood all over the place. And then God himself walks through the pieces. And he tells them that the land, um, he, he specifically gives the geographical kind of location of the promised land. But he, he then says, um, but this is essentially going to take uh, 400 years, 400 and some odd years, because the sins of the Amorites is not yet full. And it's like, the sins of the Amorites? Who, first of all, who are the Amorites? And then what did, what did their sins not being full uh, have anything to do with Israel getting the promised land? Well, God in his wise and eternal and gracious decree, decided that he was going to give this land to the Amorites on the condition um, that they would love and obey him. And even if that revelation was was only given in in creation, Romans 1 says that's enough for, for them to honor and give thanks to him. And and what happened was is the Amorites kept on continuing to disobey God and and hate God, and then God snatched the land away from them. The New Testament tells us in the Great Commission that we're to go out and teach the nations all the things that Jesus has commanded us to do. Teach the nations, disciple the nations. And, and in that, there is, there is truly a cultural commission. There is a commission inherent within the Great Commission that we are to go out and teach the nations how to act righteously in accordance with God's will. Yeah, well, in the first part of that, I know you, you were trying to get to the chase, but the first part of that is Jesus has authority over heaven and earth. He, he, his authority doesn't stop at the four walls of the church. His authority goes all over the world, not just over this particular nation or this particular time or this particular people. So how does this understanding of national covenant, the idea that God holds nations accountable for their faithfulness or lack thereof to him, how should that impact the Christian and how they uh, seek to interact in, in culture? Well, I mean, um, th- this kind of gets back to the, the question of piety a little bit. How, how can we not engage the culture? Now, now, the question of how to do it is a different question. But on a principle level, how could we not engage the culture with the gospel on the highest levels, including politics, including politicians, um, if we truly believe that Jesus is Lord over all? One thing that the Founding Fathers understood is that because as a nation we had been so blessed by God, and because as a nation we were built on the bedrock of biblical truth, because of those things we had an even greater responsibility to be faithful to God. 
uh, John Witherspoon, founding father from New Jersey, a Presbyterian minister, and yes. uh, also <laughs> a, a president of what eventually became Princeton University. John Witherspoon said, we have been a nation early and long favored with the light of divine truth, and therefore we are bound to communicate it with others. We, we have an additional responsibility, and this builds on what we learn in Luke twelve forty eight, which is uh, for everyone to whom much is given, from him much will be required. That's good. That's a good quote. Yeah, he was the the only pastor that signed the Declaration of Independence, yep. right? I would say though, in in uh, defense of Presbyterians, I read a um, uh, that Calvin in the Public Square book by David Hall, and um, it was quoted in there that uh, it, it was some percentage. It was like over half of the officers and half of the soldiers in the Revolutionary War were Presbyterians, which is why the, the English called it the Presbyterian the War. The English called it the Presbyterian <laughs> War. That's right. Those pesky Presbyterians. So. Let's look through our own history, the United States of America. Have, have there been times where God has judged the nation? I think so. I mean, even if you don't have a, a specific instance in mind, we believe that God is sovereign. And what that means is that, is that, that there's no um, event in history that, that happens by chance, uh, that happens by accident, Look, he, our listeners might not be a fan of, of Jerry Falwell, but I remember back when 9-11 happened, he was talking about how this was a judgment on America. And I, I think that there's truth to what he's saying. I don't, I don't know all the implications of what he meant by that. I don't need to defend his statement. But at least he had an idea that there's nothing that happens by accident. You, you look in Romans 1. The, the chief sin in Romans 1 is that although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. And then it says three times, therefore God handed them over. And what did he hand them over to? Well, he handed them over to all these sins. Sin itself is a judgment. I, I mean, I know, brother, that you are, uh, I'm thankful that you are involved in the pro-life. I mean, you, you wrote the heartbeat bill here in, in Idaho. So thankful for that. Abortion is a judgment of God. I mean, we're going to be judged additionally for um, abortions, but abortion itself is a judgment. When you kill your own people, when you murder babies, that is a, a nation being handed over to a reprobate mind. Yeah, schools allowing children to transition to the other gender without their parents knowing, that is a judgment yes, of God. Yes, and we need to think like that yep. um, because that actually— <laughs> I would say that helps motivate the Christian to, to not hold your breath and wait for the judgment. Realize the judgment's here. We need to repent and then turn back to God. Amen. Uh, we're both fans of Jonathan Edwards. Yes. Uh, the great revivalist of the first great awakening. Yes. And, and, uh, In the, the best use of that term. Yep. And Jonathan Edwards, uh, when, when, when calamities would come to New England, he would always preach a sermon. Yeah. And he would say, this calamity, we can confidently say, is a judgment of God because we have walked away from him in whatever area, yeah. or um, we, we have not shown our faithfulness to the fullest duty that we have. Mm -hmm. Even Abraham Lincoln, and whatever you think of Abraham Lincoln's political beliefs or how he conducted the Civil War, Abraham Lincoln famously in the second inaugural address used covenantal language. And he said that the Civil War was indeed a judgment on America for slavery. Um, several of the founding fathers said that if we didn't take care of the slavery issue quickly, that would provoke God's judgment. Thomas Jefferson said that. Mm -hmm. Benjamin Rush said that. Um, several other founding fathers used that type of language. And Abraham Lincoln captures that when he says, I'll just quote from him, yet if God wills that this war, the Civil War, continues 
until all the wealth piled by the bondman's 250 years of unrequited toil shall be sunk, and until every drop of blood drawn with the slave man's lash shall be paid by another drawn with the sword. As we said 3,000 years ago, so still it must be said, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. That's a heavy quote. It is. Well, and that was the, that was the perspective. I mean, you can think um, near the end of um, first or second Samuel. I'm getting my books mixed up. There was a famine on the land uh, for th- something like two or three years, and finally David inquired of the Lord and said, "What's going on, God?" David knew that the famine was the result of a judgment. In fact, it was he, when he went to the Lord. God said, well, "It was because Saul had had killed." Uh, I think it was the. Was it the Malachites? It was no. It was the Gideonites. It was because um, when they came out of the Promised Land, Joshua made a covenant with them, and because Saul broke that covenant, God was punishing the land. Is civil government bound to follow the word of God? Yes, absolutely, unequivocally. Give your best argument for why uh, Romans thirteen. Um, a lot of people turn to Romans thirteen to kind of show our the, the citizens' unequivocal obedience to um, the. Um, the governing officials, um, I would I would dispute what's being said there. But Romans thirteen says, "Let me read it real quick." Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. So, first of all, government is not an accident. Uh, it's not that some people came together and said, "Hey, you know, I think we should have some people governing us." Government comes from God. He's the one that sets up kings and tears down kings, uh, Daniel chapter 2. But then he says um, in verse 3, rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Um, So at that point, he's giving the, the design for what rulers are meant to be. Rulers are meant to be a terror to bad and um, protection for the good. So I would argue, and I think this is the, the, the hinge of the whole debate on what Romans 13 means, I would argue that when a government no longer is a terror to the bad, and they're no longer uh, a protection for the good, then at that point they, they, they have gone against the design of God, and by definition they're tyrants. And I think that the Christian can resist them uh, with a good conscience. And by the way, that is the argument for the revolution. That's, you know, the American Revolution, of course. <laughs> not the French Revolution or not some revolution down in New York City, but they wrestled with these ideas, and they said, can a Christian, um, can we rebel against King George? And they wrestled with Romans 13. And, and then you go read the Declaration of Independence. There's all these grievances that they had against the king showing that he, in fact, had rejected God's design for government, that he, in fact, was no longer a terror to uh, the bad, but he was a terror to the good. And they, on that ground, they separated. Now, now, you know better than me. Maybe I got some of those facts wrong. No, absolutely. Wrong. Absolutely. And Romans 13 also says that government officials are God's ministers. Ministers. Servants. Civil, yep. They're servants. Yep. Yep. So, so if, if you are a servant of God, if that is what your office calls you to, you have a responsibility to obey his will and to seek his justice reflected in the laws that you're passing. That's right. Um, when it comes to Romans 13, you know, I've heard a lot lately about the vaccine mandates mm. and that Christians, because of Romans 13, and we're told to obey the governing authorities that God has placed over us, we have a requirement to obey government, even when they require us to inject ourselves with vaccines that we might have conscientious objections to. What would your response be? I would say turn to Romans 14. <laughs> Is that a good enough answer? <laughs> 
So, I mean, um, look, um, in Scripture, you often find places where one of God's commands uh, come into conflict with another one of God's commands, and then there's moral reasoning as to well, which one takes precedent. You, you think about the Sabbath in Mark chapter 2 and chapter 3, uh, where the man with the withered hand, of course, uh, it wasn't lawful to do um, work on the Sabbath. Jesus's point wasn't there. Hey, let's just, you know, the Sabbath is over with. That, that's not his point. His point was, is that mercy uh, is better than sacrifice. He, he's, he's still saying, you know, sacrifice is important, but mercy trumps it. Same thing with uh, what Peter, Peter's, you know, the parallel of, of Romans 13 is is First Peter chapter 2, where Peter talks about these same themes about obeying the emperor. And yet, what does he do in the book of Acts? He disobeys the emperor when it comes to, because um, he was told to stop preaching. He says, you, you decide whether I'm I must obey God or whether I must obey man. So these um, human institutions never, ever, ever have absolute power because if you say they have absolute power, you've just made them God. So Romans 14 makes the argument that the reason why Christ died is so that he could be Lord of both the living and of the dead. And the conscience of a human being is the thing that God um, is Lord over, and nobody else has the right to to claim lordship over that. So, I myself am not personally against vaccines in general. Uh, we, you mentioned Jonathan Edwards; uh, he was pro-vaccine. In fact, he died from a smallpox vaccination. He did. <laughs> Maybe not the best example to pull out at this point, but vaccinations. Um, it if you if you have no problem getting vaccinations, it doesn't violate your conscience. Fine, get a vaccination. But um, the government does not have a right to say you will bow the knee to this. At that point, it's not about the vaccinations. It's about lordship over the conscience. It's the same thing with like taxation without representation. People misunderstand that, oh, they were just making a big deal out of this tax. No, no, no. What they were making a big deal out of is uh, the right to self-governance. Yep. Um, the, the, the taxation was just the circumstance and the, the um, representation was the principle behind it. English parliament had issued what was called the Declaratory Act, which said that they have unlimited power to bind the people in any way whatsoever. Mm -hmm. And the founding fathers, you know, pushed back against that. The founding generation pushed back against that and said, no, in fact, only God has absolute power to bind us in whatever cases he wants to bind us in. That's right. Civil government does not have unlimited authority. And like you said, if it claims to, it's become an idol that is replacing God, that is claiming to be the ultimate authority in the moral universe, and and that's that's a dangerous road. To so I would just encourage Christians, like even if you're like not against the vaccination, please don't get this issue wrong. Like stand up for the conscience of of other individuals. Um, this this is 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 deeper than just the vaccination. Just like the the closing of businesses and the social distancing and the mask wearing, it's it's more about something deeper than just those surface issues. We need to we need to look to the causes of things, as one contemporary author keeps on talking about. Well, thanks, Pastor Josh, for joining us. Pastor Josh from the Well Church in Boise, thanks so much. My pleasure. We're going to conclude our time, as we do on every Idaho Family Report, with a time of prayer and devotion. The text today is Psalm chapter 9, verse 17, which says, The wicked will go down to the grave. This is the fate of all the nations who ignore God. You know, Josh and I spent some time talking about national judgment, and it's a tough topic. I want to leave you guys with a vision for hope, though. Early Americans recognized that slavery, as it was practiced in the American South, 
posed an existential threat to the fledgling new nation that they had sacrificed so much for. For Jefferson, it wasn't just the regional divisions that slavery caused that he was worried about. It wasn't the moral corruption that resulted from a class of aristocratic farmers becoming dependent on the labor of enslaved men. No, what what Jefferson worried about most was the judgment of God. And in a popular book of his, I talked about this earlier, Jefferson lamented the existence of slavery in his home state. He wrote, Indeed, I tremble for my country when I reflect that God is just and that his justice cannot sleep forever. So Jefferson would have been heartbroken, unsurprised, but heartbroken, when the United States of America devolved into a civil war in the middle of the 19th century. And certainly the Bible is clear. God judges nations in this life. So with that in mind, we need to make an honest assessment of the state of our nation today, especially since Christian nations are held to a higher standard, right? As we talked about earlier, we're told by the Bible that to whom much is given, much will be required. To be sure, America was historically one of the leading Christian nations in the world, but in recent decades, we have progressively drifted from those firm foundations. We have rebelled against a triune God who has for so long given us relative peace and relative prosperity. So what are we supposed to do? What must we do? Well, all of this should drive us to our knees as we remember the promise given in 2 Chronicles 7.14, where God assures us that if we humble ourselves and repent of our national sins, then he will hear from heaven, he will forgive our sin, and he will heal our land. Because of God's goodness and because of his redemptive mercy, there is still hope for America. I still have hope for America. But that hope is found only in Jesus Christ, only in the blood of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, please help our nation Recognize the extent to which our corporate faithlessness has displeased you. As a Christian nation, God, we have dishonored your name. And yet, even despite our failings, you have promised to forgive our sin and heal our land if only we come to you with repentant hearts. Forgive us, God, for our transgressions against you. And may you once again be honored among us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, thanks for joining us again today. I hope you'll consider financially supporting Idaho Family Policy Center in the work that we do. You can learn more about us and you can give online at idahofamily.org, idahofamily.org. Until next time, keep up the good fight. See you soon.